0: Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him.
1: You know, I was tempted to uh, recap the events of the week and then I thought better of it. Um, <clears throat> I imagine that most, or maybe everybody here, has um, a TV or a computer, and you've seen imagery from uh, Super, Sand- uh, Super Storm Sandy. Superstorm Sandy. Don't you love it when disasters happen and special events come about that you have the pundits pontificating and, and uh, analyzing and microanalyzing analyzing to death. But there are some things that, that really, really jumped out at me um, that I found particularly noteworthy or, or shocking. I remember looking at the um, satellite imagery of... Uh, of sandy, i mean isn 't that a little strange to be referring to this monstrous storm by a very nice uh, user friendly name like Sandy <laughs> you uh, I, I saw the storm somewhat like pac man you know looking to devour uh, a big chunk of the United States and uh, I don't know if anybody else reacted, but, but for me it was such a huge statement of how finite and puny we are. I'm sure you've seen all the stats that it um, reached speeds of 90 miles an hour and I don't know if you've seen, I'm sure you've seen pictures of news sp- uh, People trying to report and huddling with their microphones, and I. My first response was to say to them, "Why don't you guys get out of the rain?" <laughs> <laughs> Who am I? Um, you know, you saw pictures of the uh, a crane in Manhattan that was swaying, looking like this, about to crash in a building. Um, streets flooding and um, at this point the, the latest figures show hundred and six people dead because of the impact of the storm. Economic impact at this point es- is estimated at 50 billion dollars. Obviously the larger impact is not just economically or even the destruction but the larger picture here is the human picture and how people have been people's lives have been turned upside down you know times like that i i, I want to say thank god that i'm not living in new jersey we by the way we came out my family and i came out here from new york so uh especially at this point i'm glad to have new york back there and for us to be here. But, but seriously, you know, it's. You have to have some compassion as you, you look at folks and, and you see their lives turned upside down. And, and people being injured, people dying, their houses uh, totally destroyed uh, in 30 degree weather, being without, uh, without power, without heat. and and at least for me and I'm certainly not going to stand here and say God did this but it certainly speaks to us about the power of God Mayor Bloomberg of New York City was quoted as saying this is a real profound note um, this shows us that nature is more powerful than we are that was one of the more um, insightful statements that came out of this <laughs> but seriously y- you know i'm sure y- you all know that insurance policies have in them this clause an act of god by the way I-, I don't know if you know the language but the insurance company the insurance industry defines an act of god as an act Occasioned exclusively by forces of nature, uncontrolled and uninfluenced by human intervention, and which is of such character that it could not have been prevented or escaped from by any amount of foresight or prudence. Intriguing, isn't it? Um, by the way, the national uh, hurricane. Um, Forecasting Center had all the information about Superstorm Sandy days in advance. And people were uh, expected and urged, uh, instructed to vacate, uh, to evacuate their, um, their homes. But even so, um, you look at millions of people, how, how far can you run? And it just struck me that here you have power that seems to be very much in line with the apocalyptic power that's revealed in Revelation where it speaks about God unleashing His power on rebellious humanity. And you think about it. um, Our country is by no means at this point God-focused. I think that's the understatement of the century. Part of what has happened is that we have become so clever, or we think we're clever, uh, and filled with ourselves. Um, I come from a science background, and so I've been fascinated by some of what I've been hearing, such as uh, scientists' ability to create in the lab human tissue uh, including such things as partial kidneys and it boggles my mind because there are things that I would consider to be strictly in God's uh, in God's department and yet people are able to do that and so because of that and for other reasons you see so much of the prevailing mindset in our country, in our culture to be basically godless. This is even though according to the polls that you hear, uh, Gallup and so on, 90 some percent of Americans believe in God, whoever he, she, or it may be. But uh, the action, uh, action determines what's really uh, in people's hearts. And the society is revealing a basic attitude of godlessness and you think about it it's very much human, isn't it? the desire to be independent of God to feel like we have it, we know it we can do what we need to do we really don't need God on the picture and I'm I'm not asking for a show of hands here because I would imagine that for all of us at different points in our life we had that kind of an attitude I don't need God and I can do things on my own and hopefully that was not something that lasted a long time. You know, one of these foolish things that you get for a nanosecond and then goes away, hopefully. But you see that very much in, in, in evidence. And when you stop and think about it, it is so unbelievably, unbelievably ridiculous. Uh, the psalmist here puts it in such... Vivid language. Why do the nations conspire? And you get the language g- that gives you the impression of people being in noisy tumult. You know, like like a chihuahua that is standing and and, uh, and facing a pit bull uh, or a, a doberman pincer and making all these foolish noises. And that is very much like the, the kind of. Approach that we have that humanity has towards God, why do they waste their breath literally is the impression the kings of the earth in verse two take their stand against the Lord, and this is not in any way at all a neutral kind of an expression uh, to take a stand is is a combat kind of a posture where people are willing to engage somebody else in combat. You think about how unbelievably foolish it is that people in rulership want to take that kind of an attitude. Let us break their chains and throw off their fetters. And when you think about it, it is not only foolish, just utterly, incredibly foolish, it is op- Also, hurtful and hateful because it disregards the Father's heart of love for for His children, for His creation. The one who created them and gave them power. And if we know, or as we know and understand who God really is, then He is first of all the God of love and compassion. Then a desire to be independent from God really means a desire to be disassociated from God, to have nothing to do with God. And it's the exact opposite of the right kind of ruler. And by the way, the Torah in the book of Deuteronomy stated that the king of Israel was to have his own copy of the Torah scroll, that he was to read from it, and study it so that he remembered a couple of basic realities. One, that he was no better than his fellow men, his fellow Israelites. Um, and secondly, that he realized that his rule came directly from God, and that he was under God's rule. And when you think about the culture in 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 the ancient uh, Near East, you know that, for example, the the pharaohs were considered to be divine and also that was true with the Romans. And towards the end of the first century, if you're traveling, say, on, on uh, I-36, I the Boulder Turnpike, when it really was a turnpike, I don't know if, you're, if you remember when, when uh, 36 was, uh, initially began, it was actually a toll road. Well, when you stopped at a toll road, you had to get out and there was an altar to Caesar and you were expected to take a pinch of incense and and put it on the fire there and say, Caesar is Lord. And that's the kind of mindset that people had towards rulers and when you think about reality for people who are in rule, who have the authority you realize how quickly the notion of power gets to their head. You've heard the saying power cor- corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And people who are raised up and given authority often lose perspective who they are in relation to other people and who, are, who they are in relation to God. The right attitude is not to seek to be independent from God but to be like the Hebrew servant who at the end of the seven-year stretch of servanthood came to the master and said, I do not want to be released from servitude to you. And there was a ceremony where the servant stood and, and his ear was pierced to, to the wall as an expression of his desire to, to be in lifelong servitude to the master. It was an expression of, first of all, love to his family, but as well, uh, a desire to serve his master. You see that, for example, with Paul. Rav Shaul, whenever he begins, often when he begins his letters, his epistles, he describes himself, he says, Paul, a servant, a bond servant of Yeshua. dulos, which has the same kind of connotation. Someone who willingly places himself at, at the disposal of his master. And for us who know and understand something about who God really is, that really becomes our modus operandi, our desire, is to come and place ourselves at God's service and say, Lord, here I am. I'm willing to be your servant. I'm willing to serve you. No, no holds barred. But part of our humanity is the fact that we're rebels. Think about it. If if you're given instruction is your first inclination to say, yes, I definitely want to follow that instruction. Rules and regulation, give me more. (laughs) Or or do you have the attitude that says, those are stupid rules and I have to follow them because my boss and the administration tells me to do them. And if I were in position of authority, I would do things much more sensibly. You see that with your kids. If you are a parent, you know, when you tell them not to do something, what do you think they do? You turn your back and... <laughs> they make a beeline towards the things you told them not to do. Human nature. And we can either cultivate that attitude of rebellion or, or else recognize it for what it is and come before the Lord say, Lord, you know, I really want to follow you, but I have this strong rebellious streak in me, and so I need your help. I need your help. Would you please give me the heart to follow you? And by the way, in the prophets, particularly in Ezekiel, in the New Commandment, uh, New Covenant, rather, Ezekiel 36, the Lord predicts that, that He will place his spirit within us and cause us to follow his decrees and i say yes because i know full well that a i often am clueless i don't hear i don't understand and there are times even when i do that i have the attitude that says i don't know if i really want to do this human nature and the Lord tells us that we really don't want to go there. We really do not want to cultivate that attitude of rebellion towards God. Because He rules, whether we like it or not. He rules. And every so often we have these little events, such as Super Storm Sandy, that communicates to us that we're really not as big as we think we are. The prophet Isaiah puts it in a nutshell. He says, remember this, Isaiah 46, remember this, fix it in mind, take it to heart, you rebels. I make known the end from the beginning. I don't need satellite pictures. From ancient times, what is still to come? I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I pleased. From the east, I summon a bird of prey. I don't know if you caught that. By the way, bird of prey is unkosher. God can still work with things that are unkosher. From a far off land, a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, I will do. It's one of the most definitive, absolute statements of the power of God to carry out his plans and purposes that we see in all of Scripture. We can either embrace it and rest in it and be and experience comfort in knowing the absolute power of God to work out his ultimate plans or else we can chafe at it like these kings do. The psalmist tells us what God thinks about our rebellion. At best, he finds it laughable. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. God's anger is not something that we find very comfortable. And unfortunately, we take that and we completely miss the fact that God's preferred Route is not anger and judgment, but God's preferred route is mercy and compassion. And he's driven, he driven to anger, not because he has an anger problem, he's he driven to anger because humanity breaks his heart. It's an expression of hurt. And the Lord tells those rebels what his plan is like. He says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. By the way, not Salt Lake City. I have installed my king on Zion. Here's my my program. You have your plans, your strategies. You think you can laugh in my face. But I have my plan, which will be carried out. And my plan will go through my son. It's intriguing that James talked earlier about the expression of Abraham's love, Ahava, for his, for his son Isaac. Obviously this is a direct relation or, or direct foreshadowing of what we see in John chapter 3 where we're told that the Father God has the same kind of love for his son and yet he was willing to offer him and the next few verses speak about God's program that is based around his son not us not us first of all but first of all his son you know we often think that we are God's gift to humanity kind of vacillate between thinking we're utterly worthless that's one ditch the other ditch is I'm, I'm wonderful I'm God's gift to humanity well we're really neither <coughs> because it's really not about us Amen. it's not about us Amen. it's about Yeshua he said today you are my son Today I have begotten you. And by the way, allow me to mount a soapbox for a little bit here. Um, I often enjoy reading from the New International Version. But every time I see this verse, um, smoke comes out of my nostrils and ears because I feel like this is really missing what Scripture is saying. When you think about today I've become your father, that means that before then I was not your father. Bef- that, that It's as if Scripture is saying, today I've become your father, but all the time before then I was not your father. And that is not what the Word of God tells us, folks. Whatever it is saying, there's no reference to something beginning, um, the beginning of a relationship, but rather what this is about is the son being presented, so that other people get what's been going on already? Today I have begotten you, or in Hebrew and Greek it works the same way. Yelidet ticha, yelad has to do with birth, but here obviously it's referring to figurative. Something is happening here, and it's not the giving of birth, but rather we see the installation of a king or a coronation ceremony. Now, I I don't know very many of us who have lived, who have been around long enough to remember the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II. I would say probably the closest most of us have seen is the wedding of Prince William and Kate. You know, all the pomp and circumstance and, and so on. This is something like what is described is this the special ceremony of coronation where God is saying, you guys think you're cool and you can rebel against me and do your own thing, but let me tell you, I have a plan. And the plan is directly connected to my son and here he is. Here he is. I'm presenting him to you. Installation of a king. We see some of that in the Davidic covenant in 2nd Samuel seven fourteen where the Lord predict and speaks to, to David about his son and the greater son, basically saying that he will adopt David's David's son. A special kind of relationship. And, and you see that, by the way, in the New Testament on a number of occasions where you have this verse quoted several times. You find that in Hebrews chapter 1, you find that in Hebrews chapter 5, and you find that in Acts chapter 13. And in all of those, what is what is given is a special ceremony where God presents His Son and, and saying to to the nation, to the world. This is my son. I want you to pay attention. I'm presenting him to you today. Drum roll. Anybody. (coughs) And so the notion of something beginning today is, is the relationship beginning is really not helpful. Um, Again, it's presentation of what has already taken place and God is saying, Get a clue. Here is my plan, my program based on my relationship with my son whom I, have, whom I am installing as the king. Not you guys, but he is the king and I want you to pay attention to him. And the picture that's presented of the king here is not particularly user-friendly. You know, and if you come from a Christian background and you think of gentle Jesus, meek and mild, um, this really doesn't fit. Verse, verse eight. The Lord speaking through the psalmist says, "Ask of me, and I'll make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter, and you will dash them to pieces like pottery." Wow. This is not um, a warm teddy bear here. But remember that God tailor makes His message depending on the receptivity of the people. What I mean is, to those who are eager to listen to the voice of God, He speaks in measured tones. He speaks quietly to those who are rebellious and foolish he takes a harder approach the two by four and in this this case with those who are absolute rebels and want absolutely nothing to do with God they can count on the fact that they will experience God's judgment and we sometimes wish that the message that we've been given to present is always smooth that it goes down easily and smoothly, doesn't always. Because of the fact that those who choose to rebel against God, those that choose to ridicule and mock God, have to experience God's discipline and God's judgment. And it's very sobering, very, very, very sobering for us who are in positions of authority because we recognize the fact that a we're fallible and b we're certainly e- it's very easy for us to slip into the same kind of foolishness that you see other people here presented so each Shabbat as I prepare to bring the word of God I I do that w- with sobriety Because I realized that this is not about me, but it is the Word of God. That somehow in the process of communication, my prayer is that you'll be hearing not me, but that you'll be hearing from God. Because this is about Yeshua. And we as a congregation have determined that we want to be Yeshua-focused. When he speaks to the kings, he says to them, Therefore, O kings, show discernment or prudence. Be warned or accept discipline. O judges of the earth. That's true for all of us. All of us need to hear from God. All of us need to receive the wisdom that he gives us that He wants to give us. And by the way, one of the words for wisdom here, prudence, sechol, means the ability to make wise decisions, to use common sense, and to do it successfully. Not for our sake, for our agenda, but for what God has outlined for us as His assignment. We come to Him asking for wisdom not because we don't know what to do and we need discernment, wisdom how to carry out our agenda and our strategy but because we know God has a plan God has a program God has a strategy for us and we desperately want to hear and we desperately want to follow. We need God's prudence and sometimes His the discernment that we get from discipline that we don't like but that we need because there are times when we are prone to go this way and we start to take those foolish steps and we have a loving tap on, on the arm where the Lord says, uh-uh, this is not good you're going to stub your toe or you're going to go off a cliff not a good idea learn from the discipline that God gives you. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Now that one was, that verse was one that I pulled out what remaining hair I have in trying to, to, to discern what this is about. First of all, serve the Lord with fear. Fear in Scripture here doesn't mean the f- kind of fear that leaves you paralyzed and, and bound up, but it's fear in a sense of respect and awe of God. And by the way, both of those words are worship words. Serve, the Hebrew word for serve, avad or avoda, means worship and serve. You can't worship God if you're not interested in serving Him if you're content to let other people do the service you're really not worshiping God let me say that again if you're content to let others do the work of service then you're really not worshiping God because it's two sides of the same coin whether you do big service or small service you Communicate your love of God, your desire to worship Him, and to fear and reverence Him. Now, what does it mean to rejoice with trembling? That's, doesn't that sound counterintuitive? I mean, if, okay, I, I get rejoicing. Scripture tells us to rejoice in the presence of God, uh, especially during the Mo'adim, the special holidays we have how do you rejoice and tremble and and i'm sure that for as many people as we have in this room we would have as many different answers but here's a thought we rejoice in god's presence because we want to f- follow and live in the light of god's reality in the light of god's presence And when God's presence, and please hear me, folks, when God's presence breaks through in a major way, it leaves you awestruck, trembling, in a sense where you back up and you say, wow, God, that was you. That was you. You're awestruck and, and you tremble because You recognize just who God is and who you are and it blows your circuits. Doesn't it? So because of that, you you tremble in in, in knowing the reality of of the presence of God and at the same time, you rejoice because He has seen fit to come in a major way fill the screen we look forward to that we look forward to more of that I have to say that today I really have experienced the Lord's presence especially powerfully among us today we give him the glory the concluding verse kiss the son lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way for his wrath can flare up in a moment blessed are those who take refuge in him again this is one of these uh, okay how do you put these two together well a traditionally Jewish approach on one hand on the other hand you have both and and if you come from a background that says no it has to be just this and I have to be able to put it in in a little box and, and identify it and analyze it and label it then your circuits are probably getting fried at this point First of all what does it mean to kiss the sun well obviously it's referring to an act of homage you know you see people bending down and kissing the ring of the pope or the cardinal the bishop and so on which is what they would do in ancient times either the hand or or the cheek an expression of respect an expression of the fact that you know who's superior and who is inferior you're in the presence of someone who is superior And so you show homage. Why would he be inclined to be angry? Well, he would be inclined to be angry if you are indifferent to his supremacy over you. If you come into the presence of God sashaying full of yourself, what kind of a reaction do you expect that God will give you? He is after all the king of the universe and you are his child but one of six billion or so children. <coughs> Kiss the sun, Learn to acknowledge who the Lord is in humility. Recognize the fact that he doesn't appreciate arrogance. God is opposed personally opposed to the proud he gives grace to the humble and this is what we find here by the way if you see this in Jewish translations you'll have a somewhat different translation because especially the modern Jewish translations are not very eager to have a psalm that seems to have messianic a Messiah written all over it referring to Yeshua show, out, show, show homage to the Son and then blessed are those who take refuge in Him what does that mean? Ashrei and we have our sister Elenda Lair to thank for some very good insights about this A person who is blessed, this by the way isn't saying, don't worry, be happy. Some translations render it, happy, happy are all those who take refuge in him. (laughs) That really isn't what is meant here, folks. Someone who steps on God's people mover and makes a choice to follow Him, are blessed in the sense that they're to be envied. Other people look at them and they recognize that God's hand of favor is on their life. They envy them, not because they're in a bubble, they don't suffer. In fact, those of us who are determined to follow the Lord more often than not, go through as much suffering, or sometimes even more, than those who are in rebellion but what this is saying is that God's presence and God's favor is upon us and his blessing as we choose to make him our refuge what does refuge mean folks another one of these lovely expressions brings to mind the times when I ride my bike in the summer and Starts out, you know, Colorado weather. It starts out being absolutely lovely and sunny, and then half an hour or so into the bike ride, here comes what looks like a tornado. (laughs) Not quite uh, uh, Superstorm Standy. And uh, you make a beeline for the nearest tunnel, the nearest uh, covering that you can. And that's kind of the picture here. You know, life gets intense, life gets difficult. Sometimes you look for the Lord, you come crying out to Abba, Father. You don't do what the foolish people do here at the beginning of this chapter who are convinced that they can figure it all out, they don't need God. And the Lord draws our attention and says to us, Don't be stupid don't be foolish don't engage in all this foolish tumult where you are busy trying to figure things out and arrange things learn that the answer lies in the Son the Son who has complete authority who is to be worshipped Who is to be honored? Who is to be served? Recognize the fact that as you do that, you have the Lord's covering on your life. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, for this bracing and challenging portion of your word. We thank you, Lord God that you challenge us when we are foolish and desire to live independently of you. We recognize our sin, Lord, and our preoccupation to do that. We desire, Lord God, that that your presence would be very much in reality, very evident. Lord Yeshua, that you would be very much Exalted in our lives, that we would commit to serving you, and that we would understand, Lord, how to come and take refuge in you. We bless your name, Lord. We thank you for your word. We pray, Lord God, that your Ruach would cause your word to lodge deeply to bear much fruit. We ask this Lord in Yeshua's name. Amen.